good morning. It is, is a privilege to be sharing the word with you and definitely worth a little extra prayer because that wasn't originally the plan. Um, I was uh, going visiting family this weekend, as many of you were, I'm sure, catching up on all the various Christmases and all that. And my <clears throat> hanging out with family on Friday accidentally burnt my tongue and throat a little bit on some hot coffee, a little trouble talking, but I figured no big deal. I'm not supposed to preach this Sunday. Um, recovering from some illness, things like that. And then lo and behold, um, Pastor Jim did take ill this past, this past couple days. So I got a call yesterday morning saying, Hey, you can, uh, you got something ready to go, right? So here we are. So could of course use your prayer, but more importantly, I'm sure Pastor Jim could use the prayers. You, as you all know, he would Certainly love to be up here, certainly hates to miss any time, and certainly has a lot on his plate with family and things right now this season that he doesn't want to be ill at all. It's, so please do keep their family in your prayers. They certainly could use that. And, but what's really cool that we can see God doing through this, providentially, when I was asked to fill in, was looking for what we could do with this, it just so happens that a couple of years ago, I was asked to do a pulpit supply covering um, a passage in Philippians, which just so happens to be the very next passage in Philippians from the one Pastor Jim was preaching through last Sunday. So it seemed like that would be an appropriate thing to dust off and share with everybody here this morning, especially because it fits into not only what Pastor Jim has preached, but kind of where we've been discussing we'd like to go from that sermon here into the new year. So we're going to be in Philippians 2 again. And it's situated in Philippians, the whole book has a theme running throughout about finding joy for Christians, especially in light of suffering. That's the overarching theme through this. Paul's really going somewhere with that. But the passage we looked at last week at the beginning of chapter 2 was focused on the humble attitude that Christians should have. And then it moved into, appropriate for Christmas, the highest example of that humility that we have in Christ's incarnation. It says, believers, be humble. Have this attitude among you that existed in Christ Jesus, right? That that kind of humility is what we're called to do and be as Christians, and we see it lived out to the fullest in Jesus Christ leaving his throne above to become man and to live that life of perfect humility to earn our salvation. And so as in the weeks leading up to that, days and weeks leading up to Christmas, Pastor Jim and Caleb and myself, we were talking about that passage. It was a great passage for Christmas. But also, if you look at it, it's ultimately not about the incarnation. It's using the incarnation as the example of what humility is supposed to look like. And as we talked about this, we realized, you know, every year we talk about what's the theme we see God impressing on us for our church to be growing in? What's the thing that we feel like God is emphasizing, bringing to mind over and over? Where does he want East Point to grow for the coming year? <clears throat> and we said, you know what? Humility might just be that thing. 
when it keeps popping up in different contexts, and we'd seen a couple other examples of this coming to mind, different passages we were being led to, things like that. We're like, you know, maybe God is calling us to really spend some time dwelling on what true Christian humility is and what that ought to look like for our body. And so for Christmas, we had a great kickoff to that in seeing that first and foremost personified in Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's exhortation in Philippians 2 is, be humble, put others above yourselves, look out for the needs of others. Let, look at how Christ exemplifies that. Well, this week, as you continue on into Philippians 2, Paul starts to give some more concrete direction and examples for what that's supposed to look like. We all know humility is important, but what does that actually mean lived out in the Christian life here today in our body? There's all kinds of funny ideas people have had for what humility looks like. Go to all the monks that used to starve themselves and do all kinds of crazy things to abuse their bodies because they thought that's what humility was. That's not what humility is lived out in the body. So today, we're going to see fleshed out why it's so important for churches to live well in community together. See, when we are really truly being humble the way God calls us, that's going to make the way the body of Christ lives and functions together look radically different than anything else the world has a frame of reference for. And so that's where Paul is going with this. So in our passage today, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. This unit of thought here, this passage, is built around three commands that Paul gives the Philippians and then gives them some explanations and further you know, development and grounding and all that. So that's kind of how we're going to structure this sermon this morning is by looking at these three commands and how Paul gives us the development for them. So the first command Paul gives the Philippians, in light of the humility and exaltation of Christ is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Read along verses 12 and 13 with me. Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the thing I want us to notice, first of all, about these two verses is exactly how he starts it. He starts with, so then. It's one of those really important transitional clauses that are so key to pay attention to. By starting out by saying, so then, he's saying, what I'm talking about here has everything to do with what I just got done talking about, in light of what I just got done talking about. Okay, this working out we're supposed to do is meant to be in light of what he just talked about the first 11 verses. The need for, in light of our need for humility, in light of what we know about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, in light of Jesus' now exalted status as the most humble person who ever walked the face of the earth, etc., etc. In light of all that, so then, 
Here's what to do about that. Here's what we ought to do because of that. Hence why he goes on to talk about doing it with fear and trembling. Look at all this really important stuff. He just grounded all that in. This isn't a light matter. This isn't a suggestion. This is what we ought to do in light of Jesus Christ coming to earth. In light of the humility we ought to be emulating. That so then is also important because... Some of these commands we're going to look at can be taken some different ways. I've heard people teach some very different ideas about what some of these commands mean, but by putting that little transitional phrase there, Paul is also cluing us in that we're still in a context of congregational behavior. He starts chapter 2 talking about how to live as a body, be unified together, put others ahead of each other, all these body-level commands. He's not talking to us as individuals. He's talking to us as a body. So that's going to clue us in to how to take these commands. By the way, it's yet again another really important reminder that we should not be learning and thinking about Christianity on a verse-by-verse level. What I mean by that is a lot of people teach the faith as here's the collection of memory verses to get you through your day. That's not the way the Bible is written. The Bible is written as entire books for the most part. you got some exceptions like Proverbs. It's mostly written as entire books. And that's how we got to think about it. What is Paul saying here? If I just want to rip one of these verses out of context, like work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But if I'm situating it in the flow of thought of what Paul is saying here through all of chapter two, chapter two let alone all of the book of Philippians, that's going to clear up a lot of that confusion. Too many Christians are content to live one verse at a time. And that's not the way the Bible is written. And that leads to very superficial understandings of what God is actually trying to tell us with his word. So it's Not really our main thrust, kind of a sidebar here, but I always want to remind people, like, get what God's trying to tell us out of his word. There are so many riches in his word, and we miss the vast majority of them. If we're just looking for, give me a verse or two that sounds cool, that'll help me feel uplifted to get through my day. That's not the way the faith has been handed down to us, and we should not settle for that presentation of it. So by looking at the context here, we can get an idea of what exactly Paul means by work out your salvation. What does he mean by this phrase? It's a tricky one. The Greek word he used there for working it out does mean to bring something about. Wait a minute, pastor. That sounds like he's like you're saying like to the worst being called to save ourselves. But we know that's not the way it works. If you've been a part of this church for any length of time, we are very, very clear on the overwhelming weight of Scripture that says we cannot save ourselves. I have several of those verses listed in your notes if you want to do some digging and track that down a little bit on your own. But that's something we are very clear on. We emphasize all the time we cannot save ourselves. Salvation is ultimately a work of Christ. We attain it only by faith alone. No amount of working anything out will bring about our individual salvation. So that begs the question, what is he talking about here? 
Well, I'll also give further <clears throat> exegetical grounding. Okay, we said we got to look at this in context, right? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, the context is talking about how we're supposed to live as a body. That's how he starts the chapter. That's where he's going from here. It's all about us as believers living together in unity and humility and what that looks like. So why would he just randomly insert a phrase about, hey, and by the way, don't forget to save yourselves. That doesn't make sense. So what does he mean by this phrase? Well, we're talking about community here. Christian salvation brings about an entirely different kind of community that the world cannot understand. And he's going to really blow this up more in the next couple of verses, this idea of Christian community. So as Paul's instructing them, how are you supposed to live as a community, Christians, <clears throat> by putting others ahead of yourselves, looking out for others' interests, all these other things he's been saying so far about being humble. He's getting to the heart of the matter right here. By treating each other well, we are bringing about some of the effects of salvation here on earth, even as we're still waiting on the full version to come in heaven. One day, we will live in perfect community with our Lord and with each other. That is one of the most glorious aspects of heaven to come. What Paul is saying is here is right here and now, church, you can work out, you can bring about, you can manifest a little slice of that heaven right here and now by living in humility. That this is not just about ethics. This isn't about treat each other nice because that's the right thing to do. No, treat each other right because that's what heaven will be like. And we are called to put that on display for the world. We are working out what salvation looks like by living well together and treating others the way that God implores us and exhorts us to do so. Now, he's going to make this much more obvious in verses 14 and 15. We're going to flesh this out even more because he's going to you know, really pound this point in. But notice he says this working out your fear, working out your salvation rather, is to be done with fear and trembling. That this is a solemn, serious duty to be witnesses to the world of this reality of salvation we just described. We're showing the reality of the suffering and exalted Christ that he just got done talking about a few verses earlier. When we live together as a, as a community of believers. That's why this is so important. That's why it's to be done with fear and trembling. This isn't a suggestion. It's not a nice perk if the church functions well together and we have no drama. No, no, no. This is essential to who God is calling us to be on earth. This is our solemn, sacred duty. It is a big, big deal. And it needs to come from within. We all need to see this. Paul says, yeah, you did it in my presence. Make sure you're doing it in my absence. This isn't something we're supposed to be doing because someone is standing over us saying, by the way, this is how you're supposed to behave. No, this is supposed to be from the reality of what Christ did. We see that. We are motivated to live that out. We're motivated to work out that reality of salvation because we see how big a deal it is. Because we want to honor Christ. Because we are motivated by what he did for us. And because we want to see his gospel fleshed out 
for the world around us. But how do we do this? How is that even possible? That's where we get the beauty of verse 13 to come in. God's really the one doing this through us. It's His plan. It's His plan to put the gospel on full display so that all are without excuse. It's His good pleasure to work out through us what the gospel is and looks like in the flesh so that everybody can see it, whether they believe it or not. What he's saying here, the flow of thought is just as it pleased God. We see up in verse 9, just as it pleased God to humble and then exalt Christ, we just talked about last week, he's also pleased to use us to manifest that salvation found in Christ to the rest of the world. See how this is bigger than just, okay, living in peace and harmony so we have less drama in our lives, right? There's the gospel behind this and being shown by this. And so Paul makes this very clear as he moves on to his second command in verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, read along with me verses 14 through 16. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Not do most things, or do, let alone do some things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. But this command is given to explain how we are to exercise our salvation in a way that works out, that displays our salvation. Again, work out our salvation, that sounds great. Be humble, that's great, but what does that mean? So Paul says, okay, let me give you a very concrete example of what that means, how that looks lived out in the life of us as a church. And the first and foremost way is don't grumble and complain and dispute and cause problems. He's basically saying keep it to yourself. Okay, that's the first way. He gives a very clear-cut command in verse 14, but... Verse 15 is what gives it so much weight. See that so that again? Okay, these, uh, these are so key to understanding what he's saying here. He's saying don't grumble or dispute so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Prove yourselves to be children of God. Prove yourselves to be above reproach in the midst of that crooked and perverse generation. That's what gives it so much weight. By living in fellowship as a body here, as East Point, as one church that can live together in humility, that can cut down on all the grumbling and disputing, by doing that without discouraging or tearing each other down, we're doing something the world cannot do on its own. Live in unbroken community. The world longs for community. We all do. 
Everybody finds their tribe, right? Everybody loves some kind of community. But every human community that does not have the grace of Christ at its core breaks down. Sure, there's plenty that can survive for a long time. But to actually be something that is a blessing, where there is true unity, where there is true humility, where there isn't jockeying for ego, where there isn't serving one's selfish interests, where there aren't all the drama and politics, that's not possible outside of God's community, the church. That's the only place that's truly possible. Everything else is just covering up the, the drama until it eventually erupts. Every other human institution. And that's what makes us seem blameless and innocent. Are we actually blameless and innocent? No. We still have problems. We still will have interpersonal problems within the body of Christ. But compared to the rest of the world, we will be those lights, he talks about in verse 15. Lights in the world in the middle of all the crookedness and perversion he talks about, which is how the world can see the reality of the gospel. When the world looks at the church, it should see here's a group of people that actually mean these things, that actually live in love, that actually live in harmony, that actually are able to put this together. Why doesn't this happen in any of the organizations I'm a part of? What's different about these people? Our Lord elaborates it on even further in what they're supposed to see. Look what he says in John chapter 17. One of the deepest statements in all of Scripture. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, talks at one point, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, his disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, us, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Somehow we can have a unity that's like the unity between Father and Son that proves that the Father sent the Son because it's something the world can't produce on its own. It's different. It's unique. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. How does that work? How is our unity like the unity or the same as the unity between the Father and the Son? I don't understand that. It blows my mind to try and ponder what that means. I know it won't be fully realized until we're in heaven, but there is a unity we have as brothers and sisters in Christ that comes from God and indeed is the same as within the Godhead. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Again, you see the, how the fear and trembling comes into play here? How much bigger this is than our own peaceful coexistence, that the world can see that Jesus Christ is for real based on how God's people live in community, the unity we share, the humility we can show to be able to share that. So in other words, good attitudes within the body 
all that humility and other things, lacking grumbling, all that stuff. The unity we have maintains a good reputation for our church. It looks different to the rest of the world, which in turn contrasts with the rest of the world to create that good witness. People talk about what's our witness to the world. Well, it's the things you say. we got to witness, share the gospel. Yes, definitely. What's our witness to the world? What's the things you do? The world sees you live differently. They can tell you must be different. Yes, that's part of our witness. There's a third one that most people forget to mention, and that's our unity, our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. When Jesus is praying for his followers to come, he doesn't say, Father, make sure their gospel presentations are always crystal clear, which is still important. He doesn't say, make sure they live really holy lives, which is still really important. There's plenty of scriptures of those other two, to those two things as well. But what Jesus prays to the Father for the enduring witness of his followers for the rest of time is, Father, give them unity. Give them love for one another that proves that I'm real because it couldn't have come from anywhere else the world can manufacture. That's how big a deal this is. And so then Paul goes on in verse 16. He shows that succeeding in maintaining this Christian community in a body also edifies those who are already in the faith, especially those who discipled us in the first place. He talks about, Hold fast so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He's saying not only is this a witness to the world, this is building up your brothers and sisters. How many times do we hear the horrible stories about churches that can't maintain their unity and fall apart, often over the silliest reasons? How discouraging is that? Yet, how encouraging is it when we hear stories of churches that are unified, that are doing great things for the kingdom as a body? We need those reminders, first of all, that East Point isn't the center of the Christian universe. There are other good churches out there that God is working and doing amazing things. But number two, that it's edifying us that the work we are doing, that God is producing fruit through all of this that God is still at work. Sometimes we don't get to see that fruit for a while, do we? How many times have we had seasons in life where it's felt like we've tried to be faithful for weeks and months, if not years? We haven't seen the fruit, haven't seen the fruit. Sometimes we need those reminders that God is still working, that fruit is still being born, even if we don't get to see it. He's saying when we are unified as a church... It's edifying people all over the place. It's not just witnessing to the world. It's building up our brothers and sisters from other churches when they can see us living together in humility, in unity, the way that Christ exhorts us. East Point, everything in this passage screams that how we treat one another is bigger than us. It's about so much more than what we see and feel and experience. It's a whole bigger world than all this. It's one of the things that makes Christianity different from so many other worldviews or philosophies. We're not exhorted to treat one another well so that good things 
can come our way so our lives go better, although God will bless us in some way or other. He does take care of his people. But no, we're exhorted to treat one another well because that's how God brings about all his greater purposes. That's what he's talking about here. And so he concludes this section with the twin commands there to rejoice and also to rejoice with me, Paul. Look how he closes this out in verses 17 and 18. He says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Look at the way Paul phrases. He says he's unconcerned with the personal cost of discipleship. He doesn't say, I don't care if I have to... If I'm poured out as a drink offering, that means totally giving of oneself. All you have to give, poured out, spent, gone upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. He's saying living for these people, building up their faith, even if that costs him everything, he's unconcerned because it's not ultimately done for himself. He sees the bigger picture. He can rejoice in seeing that God's purposes are accomplished. Again, verse 13, God is the one willing and working for his good pleasure. He knows it's not about him. He knows God is bringing about his purposes. And so he's making sure to share that attitude with others, saying, I'm rejoicing knowing God's working no matter what the cost to me. Hey, If you can look at it the same way, too, you can have that same joy. He's trying to share that with them to encourage their faith as he just exhorted them to do. He's modeling for them sharing joy. Hey, let me share my joy with you so now you can go and live it out and you can share your joy with me. We can build one another up here. By the way, this is Paul showing a great example of discipleship. He's modeling what these things mean. He's showing them what this looks like as he's exhorting them to do it. But he's encouraging them to rejoice as he does. Verse 18, rejoice in the same way. How Paul is rejoicing, he's calling us as a church to rejoice, saying their commitment, our commitment to godly community should be a cause of joy. This is not a chore. This isn't be good to one another, live well, because there's all these bigger things and you just got to do it. This is so important. You can't mess it up. No, it should be a cause of joy because even though we may have to make personal sacrifices, and by the way, humility will mean personal sacrifices, we can still and should still have joy because God's purposes are being accomplished by witnessing to the world. Okay? Humility sounds great on paper. Is anybody here who's anti-humble? I think we need to be more proud. Anybody willing to take up that banner? No. We all know it's a good thing. In theory. But when we actually think about what does humility mean fleshed out? What does it mean to actually be humble with my brothers and sisters? That does mean sacrifice. And that's where we we shrink back a little bit. It's nice and easy 
to, okay, I want to be humble because I, just, I won't bring attention to myself, which is convenient because I'm, an, I'm shy and an introvert anyway. No, that's not humility. Humility is saying, well, you know what? Here's what technically I'm entitled to, but if I'm willing to give that up, that's going to bless my brother or sister. It's giving up one's quote-unquote rights when that's what it means to love our brother and sister. That's humility. That's sacrifice. And going into that, that seems really scary. That seems, how can I do this? What if, what if, what if? Won't this be miserable if I can never get what I want? Paul says, no, no, no. That's the path to true joy. Because it gets our perspective straightened out to where all those other things that we want to chase after in our pride, when we can view them rightly, we can see how they're instead weighing us down from the things God really wants us to be focused on and really find our joy in. He says that he desires that same encouragement to come back from them by seeing that they have true joy from living their faith out. He wants them to get it because nothing is more encouraging to Paul than seeing his brothers and sisters in Christ find that joy for themselves, which in turn gives him joy. And then they have joy because they can see Paul having joy. And it just goes around this beautiful circle that we are rejoicing by seeing how much we're encouraging one another by having our heart fixed in the right place. So that's this flow of thought. Humility looking like manifesting our salvation, concretely doing things without grumbling, and in all of that, finding true joy in the perspective and having a right perspective on life. So what do we do with this text? There's some, obviously some more concrete things in it, but how should we think about this moving forward? Tomorrow, in the, a new year, how should this be shaping our thinking, East Point? Well, number one, we're being exhorted here to live as a community in a way that shows salvation. Not just as individuals, but as a body of believers to be living in such a way that salvation is evident. That the world has no doubt that Jesus Christ is real by looking at our lives. Everybody knows we should treat each other well and have good attitudes. Now, how well people do it actually following that is one thing. But at the very least, every human being has a God-given conscience that tells them you're supposed to be good to other people. But Christians have a deeper reason for this than mere ethics. This isn't just about behaving right because behaving right is important. There's bigger stuff here. We, as believers, are actively trying to show people that the gospel makes a difference. Because if it does, 
If the gospel changes us in a way the rest of the world can't, doesn't, or can't, then there is real power behind it. That the gospel is not like all the other religions and philosophies of the world. How many people think they don't need Christianity because they have whatever other philosophy, whatever other religion, whatever other way of looking at the world that makes them think, well, this works for me and that works for you, it's all good. Every human being justifies himself or herself. They're gonna, we're all going to find some way to feel like we've got it figured out and we're okay. What makes Christianity different is that it produces real results. It produces changes that no other philosophy can manage, can manipulate, can create at a heart level that lasts. And so we can do this because we've been renewed by Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living inside us. This passage is a reminder for the motivation of why it's so important to live well as a community. So now that we know why to live well as a community, now that we know that we have the power to do it, we need to actually actively go out and do it. We can't be stuck in the extremes. So many churches, we, we tend to get bogged down when we have sermons about things like this. We get bogged down in these two extremes of either on the one hand, sermons that preach nothing but action and effort, but it's powerless because there's no scriptural, spiritual grounding for how and why to do it. It's important to live right. Go live right. Go do the right thing. And then we get frustrated, spinning our wheels, trying to be better, trying to be good, trying to do the right thing over and over, but somehow failing over and over and not knowing why. I know I'm supposed to, and then we're beating ourselves up, and the guilt weighs down, and that whole vicious circle. Well, that comes from shallow teaching that just says, well, people just, pastor, just tell me what to do, and never thinking any more than that. I'm just trying to do, 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 do. But then there's the other extreme that says, okay, let's give all this beautiful theology about how Christ has it all figured out for us. Christ accomplished it all. We have the power. But then never balances out with the other side of Scripture that says, so now do something about it. It's that tension we can never escape in Scripture of, it's all by God's power, but it doesn't happen if we don't do it. we got to rely on God, not take pride and rely on self. But we have to actually get off our keister and do something. We got to have both. And we got in passages like this are exhorting us in this case, we need to be actively concerned with how we are living as a body. How does this church living together in unity? It's not just a nice concept to hear on a Sunday morning. Oh, this, isn't it cool that we get this picture of the gospel by being a church? Yes, but it only works if we do something about it if we actually make a conscious effort as a church to live out this unity and salvation. Otherwise, it's just happy thoughts that don't mean anything outside these walls and don't witness to the truth. So what's that going to look like? Well, first, let's start on the internal. 
Another takeaway we should have for this is that we should rejoice that we fulfill God's plan. We should be finding that joy. We want motivation. We want an attitude that will sustain us to go and do. We want to start by having the joy that Paul spends all of Philippians talking about. Yes, there's going to be difficulties and sacrifices for following Christ. Make no mistake, anybody who tells you that just because you're saved means everything's all hunky-dory from here on out is selling you a bill of goods. It's not how it works. There will still be challenges, but we can experience true joy through them in a way the world cannot because we're actually serving a higher purpose. There is meaning in the suffering of believers. We have that explicitly as a promise in Scripture in Romans 8.28, right? God works all things together for good of those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose, right? We have that promise, but even more importantly, seeing that God is at work. Everything is according to His good pleasure, that God has a plan and a purpose for all this, so we can rejoice because we know that none of it is meaningless, If you've been saved a while, have you ever stopped and thought back to the despair that it is to suffer in life without knowing that there is a purpose for that? The despair that most of the world experiences? I mean, it's nice to try and dress it up and ignore it, but at the end of the day, that's what has to be going on in the hearts of someone who doesn't have this hope. We do have that hope. We can live in true joy. We, we have that higher purpose. So what better witness to the world, as well as encouragement to our fellow believers, than when we can have real joy in difficulties because our perspective is rooted in Christ. That we can actually actively see everything in our lives through that lens that God is doing something with it. That there's a reason for it. That God is accomplishing something with it and by it. Now, this is not to say that we won't still have real discouragements in life. Our perspective will be challenged when we hit those bumps in the road. This is not to say we shouldn't come alongside those who are suffering. Right? Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Right? We're supposed to be alongside each other for the whole ride. It's not going to do to say, well, sorry you're suffering, but hey, rejoice in Christ. See ya. That ain't going to work. That's not how we've been called to live in community, edifying one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But nonetheless, in this passage here, Paul is building a case. He's building a case for why we can have joy in the face of real trial and tragedy, and he culminates later on in chapter 3. Chapter 3, 7, and 8 is the climax of the entire book of Philippians. Look what he says there. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ." That's where all this is leading. All this rejoicing and suffering, all this rejoicing that it does, it's okay to be humble and set aside all that we would seek to gain. It's okay to do all these things because if we are viewing our lives rightly the way Paul did, 
Everything else pales in comparison to Christ. That's how he's trying to shepherd us along that direction, is to be able to say, yes, there are other good things God gives us in life, but they all seem like nothing when you put them next to Christ. Can we really love and treasure Christ so deeply that nothing will discourage us because nothing has a hold on us the way Christ does. If we experience pain, it's because we are holding on to something. Does that make sense? It wouldn't hurt if it wasn't important to you. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't have other things in life that God has placed in there for a reason to be important, and we won't have real pain. But what Paul is saying is the way to combat that, the way to deal with the pain, the way to lessen the unnecessary pain is to put our focus on Christ, to find actual, true, lasting, deep-seated joy in Christ, to where He really is our everything. That's the perspective that will empower us to go in true humility and look at our body of brothers and sisters and how we can be better unified with them, how we can live out this faith, how we can make the gospel evident to the world, how we can put all those things out there. It comes first and foremost from treasuring Christ above all else, not most else, all else. So yes, that's the heart grounding for how to live out this community. But if we want a very concrete, what, do we, what can we do to make this happen? We have one very clear-cut, very concrete command in this passage. It's quite simple. Don't grumble. Can't make it any clearer than that. Now, this doesn't seem like, why does Paul pick up on this one thing? In this grand passage, this huge scope of all these deeper spiritual truths and realities, why does he pick on grumbling? I'll tell you what, grumbling is the poison in the well of Christian unity. We've seen it happen here. We've all seen it happen other places. That's where we see real problems develop in a body. Yes, there is a place for correction. There is a place for holding one another accountable. No, we are not perfect. Including the leadership of this church, there's always room to improve. So there's even a place for edifying suggestions, dare I say, constructive criticism. There is a place for all of that. But grumbling, that gongismas, Pastor Jim likes to talk about sometimes, right? There's no place for that in the body of Christ. <clears throat> that is not, that is never going to be healthy. And people in church do this all the time, and they love, we all love to disguise this, right? Well, I was just offering a suggestion. Well, I was just venting. Well, they need to hear it. 
We love to rationalize grumbling or call it by some of these other names that are okay. But it's always wrong, and it always harms the unity of the body. If you want to talk about, so what's, what is the opposite of grumbling? What's, what's the cure for grumbling? A lot of people, I, I put this question to the group of people we were, you know, we do our prayer before the Sunday morning service. I put this question to the group, and most people, what they've heard their whole lives, and there's definitely some truth to this, is the antidote, the cure for grumbling is gratitude. If you are thankful, you won't grumble. And there is certainly a kernel of truth to that. But based on this passage, the way Paul lays it out for us, the opposite of grumbling is not gratitude. That's along the path. The opposite of grumbling is humility. When we are grumbling, yes, we lack gratitude. But really, beneath that, what we really lack is humility. And that lack of humility makes us feel entitled, which then makes us ungrateful and start to grumble. But humility, that's what this chapter is expressly dealing with. He says, be humble. Be like Christ. Be humble so others can see your salvation. And so what does that look like? Stop grumbling. That is very, very explicitly the flow of thought Paul has here. And so I want to challenge us, challenge us with what does it really say when I grumble? If I go ahead and indulge that, if I go ahead and begin grumbling about whomever or whatever within the body of Christ, what does that really say? Well, first of all, if I'm grumbling, if I, instead of being humble, I choose to grumble, that's saying that rather than obey God's word that says not to grumble, I'm deciding that my frustration, my need to vent, trumps what God says. Because by golly, I just can't take it anymore. It's ironic in this context of the humiliation that Christ endured without ever complaining that we sometimes think of, you know, yes, God, I I believe what you say, I'll follow your word, but now it's really, really hard. So now I'm going to indulge my flesh because it got really hard. That's not an attitude of humility. That's an attitude that says, I'm really on the throne. I'll do what God says as long as it's convenient for me. But when push comes to shove, I'll do what I want. That's what I say when I'm grumbling. Or how about this? If I'm grumbling, instead of adopting the the humble attitude I should, that means that rather than putting others ahead of myself, as we were exhorted earlier in Philippians, I'm saying that my perceptions, my preferences, my personal opinions reign supreme. I can't just accept the fact that someone else is in charge and someone else is doing things. i got to make sure my displeasure is heard because my opinions are that important. Doesn't exactly smack of humility, does it, when I feel the need to grumble that way? Or probably perhaps worst of all, 
If instead of humility I choose to grumble, that means that rather than loving my brothers and sisters with compassion that covers a multitude of sins, as 1 Peter 4.8 tells us, you know, that covers that in grace enough to keep it quiet, instead, I'm broadcasting by my grumbling to the world that somebody wronged me and I'm upset about it, even if that means throwing a brother or sister for whom Christ died under the bus. If not God himself, because let's be honest, if we're not grumbling about people, we're grumbling about circumstances, and who controls our circumstances? If we really, really want to cut down to the root of the issue, if we want to be really honest, grumbling is just a particularly nasty form of gossip about other people, including God, depending on if it's people or circumstances. That's how serious this is. That's why that little command, do all things without grumbling or disputing, it seems kind of out of place to our mentality because we love to grumble. But Paul is saying here, no, no, no. That is the crux of the issue. If we are really humble before one another, really loving our brothers and sisters, really putting this body ahead of ourselves so that the gospel is on full display the way God intends, there's no way we can be grumbling. Because that goes against every one of those principles. And oh yeah, instead of supporting them, actively seeks to destroy that unity. I'll be honest. If this is hard hitting, if this feels like I'm stepping on your toes, don't worry. I'm getting this as bad as anybody in here. You ever have those moments when the Holy Spirit like drops a ton of bricks on your head about something? As I'm going through this, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, with our kids, we're always seeking to work on different, you know, godly character things and using scripture, all that. So there's, there's been a season where we really focus on this passage here about putting others before ourselves and about not grumbling. We had one of our kids in particular have memorized that verse and recite it for us a few times. You know, it came up a lot. And you know what really smacked me over the head? Where'd they learn it? We all, all have to be vigilant about this because pride is the root of all other sins. It will come up if we are not vigilant to fight it. And in the context of a body of believers, it will tear apart a church as soon as we let it run rampant. By God's grace, this ministry has been preserved from totally falling apart. Yes, we've had our moments. We've had individual conflicts and things like that. But by God's grace, this ministry has continued to grow and thrive. But the way God's grace worked itself out is he has kept egos in check. And if we are not vigilant to pursue that as a body, it will come back up. Humility is the foundation of Christian unity. And if we want to make sure we are preserving that by God's grace, it starts with watch our mouths. Because that will, like I said, that's the poison in the well that will destroy our unity. So our challenge moving forward, 2024, 
Our New Year's theme, you could say, is how can we, in light of this, live more joyfully in humility together as a body so that the world sees Christ in our church, not just in our individual lives and conversations. How will East Point Bible Church be a light for the gospel to Peru, Indiana, to Miami County, Lord willing, even beyond? How will the gospel be on display by how we live together in humility this year? That's our challenge. If we can just at the bare minimum get not grumbling, that's going to strike a lot of people as odd, won't it? But that's our challenge for the year. How can we manifest the gospel in our humility and unity? Ready for it? It's not going to be easy, but that's definitely what God expects of his people and definitely where we will find a joy we have yet to find the more we grow in it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your grace, you were willing to be humble. That Jesus Christ came as the paragon of humility. That we have that example that we have the power of your spirit to follow that. And so we pray for this church that each and every one of us sees how important humility is, but not seeing it as a weight, not seeing it as an obligation, but seeing it as a joy springing from how much we treasure Christ. Father, we pray, we beg that you would exalt Christ in the hearts and minds of everyone in this body, that he is truly our joy, that we may find true joy in the rest of our lives by treasuring Christ above all and living that out as a body, here for one another in humility, building one another up, seeing the true slice of heaven that is Christian community the way your word intends for us. Please give us that. By your spirit, give us humility. Give us conviction where we fall short. Give us the humility to accept that and grow past it by your power, by your strength, according to your word. We can't manipulate it. We can't guilt people into it. And if we did, we wouldn't want that kind of result. We need you, Father. We need you to work in us for that work to never stop until we are one day face-to-face fully sanctified in the face of our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.